0: Roe vs. Wade and Planned Parenthood vs. Casey haunt our country. We shall not weary, and we shall not rest.
1: We are thousands strong to tell the world, reverse Roe
0: versus Wade!
1: Welcome to Life After Dops. I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and together with Ryan Anderson, I'm co-author of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Today we're speaking with Carl Truman, a Christian theologian and ecclesiastical historian. He's an undergraduate professor at Grove City College, where he teaches in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. And prior to this role, he was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's also a fellow here at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in the Civic Life Program, where his work aims to help civic leaders and policymakers better understand the deep roots of our current cultural malaise. He's the author, most recently, of a book titled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and a second iteration of the book written for popular audiences, titled Strange New World. Carl, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: Of course. So um, for listeners, we want to dive into your your book and sort of the ways that it connects um, with our book and what we've been talking about on this podcast and just kind of general cultural issues we've been having. I know um, you and I have talked a bit about this, but I, I loved your book. I think it speaks very much to the the problems we're facing, and I hope that Uh, This podcast will encourage any listeners who haven't read it to go out and and grab one of the two versions that are out there for them. So in Tearing Us Apart, we focus a lot on on rebutting pro-abortion talking points, providing facts about abortion, about the pro-life movement. Uh, But we also talk a lot about the philosophy that animates the abortion advocacy movement and and that undergirds kind of the the pro-abortion mindset. And a lot of this, most of this stems from the sexual revolution and second wave feminism. So there's a lot of overlap here with your, your recent book. Uh, so can you tell our listeners a bit about your thesis and before we get into how all that relates to the abortion debate?
0: Sure. Well, the book arose out of my fascination with a particular sentence, uh, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Uh, I wasn't interested in in refuting that sentence so much as finding out how it had come to make intuitive sense to so many people. Uh, and in the course of exploring that, I realized, one, that the the historical forces Uh, that had shaped the modern mentality that makes such a statement plausible, a very deep-rooted and and wide-ranging. And secondly, that underlying an awful lot of modern political issues, particularly identity politics issues, whether we're talking transgenderism, uh, queer identity, uh, abortion, uh, a lot of these issues uh, that appear in some ways on the surface to be, be separate issues actually share an underlying anthropology, an underlying understanding of what it means to be a, a human person. It's that really that lies at the core of many of the debates that are going on in society at the moment.
2: And Carl, can you say a little bit about that very last phrase? It's the title of um, one of our colleagues at EPBC's book, Carter Sneed, you know, what it means to be a human. Um, how, do, how do you see that playing out, um, not just know, in the transgender debate, you had said that, you know, what motivated you to write your book was, how did we arrive at a moment when people actually believe, you know, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body is anything other than um, nonsense? I mean, how have we arrived at a moment in which um, my body, my choice, clump of cells, the Judas Jarvis Thompson style um, fetal violinist arguments? I mean, how do you see how that's played out in the abortion context?
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I, I think at the heart of the modern understanding of what it means to be a human person, we might see that there are, this is somewhat simplistic, but I think we might see that there are two, two elements in that. One, we have a, a highly psychologized understanding of what it means to be a human being, which tends, therefore, to accent self-consciousness as, as determinative of what is and is not a person or who qualifies as as being a person and secondly uh, an emphasis upon autonomy the idea that at the heart of what it means to be human is this notion that we are we are free uh, and when you think about that there are sort of implications that flow from starting from the point of view that human beings are autonomous if you think about rousseau's uh, notion man is born free, and everywhere is in chains. Then you look at how Rousseau works that out in his thinking what what arguably happens is that that every human relationship, every relationship to everything in fact, becomes contractual and and potentially adversarial so uh, if you were to apply that to the abortion debate, uh, I mean you and I uh, the three of us here would say that the the baby in the womb is a person but somebody operating with a view that a, a person is to be self-conscious and is to be autonomous must of course deny that because the uh, what is in the womb is clearly not self-conscious at least uh, uh, initially and certainly not in any way that uh, an adult linguistically capable human being would be uh, and secondly is is not Autonomous. I, I think of. I, I was trying to find it earlier, but I couldn't find the quotation. I was going to actually read it. There's a great quotation from Oliver O'Donovan's little book *Begotten or Made*, where he comments on being a, a pro-life advocate uh, in, in the 70s and being shocked that what he regarded as the weakest argument of the pro-abortion lobby proved to be the most politically effective, and that is. Uh, that the baby in the womb is merely a part of the woman's body. Uh, and his comment his commentary on that is, for me, that was a nonsensical argument, he said, but actually, it connected to the deepest intuitions of Western culture. It had a powerful rhetorical plausibility, even though it was philosophically nonsense as far as he was concerned, that carried the day relative to uh, legal and public opinion. And I think that goes to the heart of if you're like, what divides people over abortion now is do you believe that human beings are defined by self-consciousness and autonomy? Or do you think, along with, say, Carter Sneed, uh, a friend who who you mentioned just a few moments ago, uh, Carter Sneed, who argues, no, human beings are actually born dependent. We always exist in uh, relationships of dependency and obligation. And to build an anthropology on uh, the notion of autonomy is is self evidently absurd.
1: So, so to kind of go along with that, um, you're explaining the philosophy very well. And one thing I've always had a hard time understanding, and I, what I think you do so well in in the book, is how you're able to explain the way that these kind of highbrow philosophical concepts um, trickle down into popular culture to the point where uh, these ideas that that were kind of somewhere in a, a faction of academia become common knowledge or popular belief, um, you know, the idea that the the baby is part of the woman's body or in your book, the idea that a, a man could in some sense be a woman or vice versa. Um, it, even for kind of your average person who's never heard about any of the philosophers or the thinkers whose uh, thought kind of got us here. Can you say a bit about how that happens?
0: Yeah, so there's an intellectual genealogy that one can trace. Uh, and I start with Rousseau, uh, one could start with the Renaissance. I'm sure the two of you, as as good Catholics, would want to start with the Reformation. Uh, I might press back and then start with the late medieval papacy or something. You know, we can go way back in time. But but I start in my book with Rousseau, partly because I think Rousseau has been incredibly influential on educational theory, which is a very, very significant part, and and political theory as well, at least in in Europe, maybe not so much in the United States. Um, I, I find Rousseau to be very influential. Rousseau is really the man as I've already mentioned, he has this notion that man is born free and everywhere is in chains and as a uh, corollary of that, therefore, he sees culture, civilization as that which inhibits us uh, uh, and corrupts us, prevents us from being authentic, prevents us from living out our, our inner uh, feelings, our inner desires. And it's interesting when you look at modern discussions, say, of uh, uh, sexual morality. How often the language of authenticity has supplanted the older language of right or wrong, you know when some leading sports star leaves his wife and runs off with another man the the media generally present that as a kind of liberation that that finally this person is able to be who they they always have been that's That's language that I think we can find in that tradition of uh what Charles Taylor uh, would call expressive individualism, this idea that we are constituted by inner feelings and we are made authentic by our ability to express those inner feelings without that being twisted and perverted uh, by uh, the culture around us. That sort of morphs in the 19th century. I think one of the things that saves uh, Rousseau and his heirs in the Romantic movement from pure subjectivity Uh, descent into sort of moral chaos is that Rousseau and the Romantics do believe there is such a thing as human nature. In other words, uh, if we can just get back to human nature before society corrupted it, we would all be empathetic. We would all conform to a a natural morality or natural ethic uh, rooted in empathy for others. In the 19th century, uh, for various reasons, uh, philosophy starts to move in certain quarters against the idea of human nature as being a given. Uh, We find it in Hegel, for example, where human nature becomes something that's always in process. That's picked up by Marx and and radicalized, uh, as many of our listeners will know, in a particularly materialist direction. We have Charles Darwin, who relativizes uh, uh, human nature in compar- you know, makes it part of a process of of evolution, and so what we might think of as as moral codes that are inherent to being uh, human becomes simply uh, mystifications or rationalizations of patterns of thinking and behavior that are required for the benefit of the species and uh, my, my favorite nineteenth century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche sort of blows the whole thing apart and essentially says uh, human nature is a a, a mystical vestige of theism, of Christianity. If you get rid of God, then we need to get rid of this idea that human nature comes with uh, a natural moral framework supplied, so to speak, and, and really clears the way there for the kind of radical... Autonomy we see today, how that stuff trickles down to the ordinary man or, or woman in the street is 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 a complicated question. But I think I would throw in two things at this point. I would I'd want to bring in my sort of Augustinianism and say. We like to think that we're gods. There's a natural tendency in human beings to want to be autonomous, to want to be free. We experience life as free, intentional beings, and we like that. So any philosophy that uh, preaches up autonomy and freedom is likely to strike a chord in our hearts. And secondly, I think technology. Technology fundamentally reshapes how we imagine our place in the world and allows us you know, even you know the person who's never read Nietzsche can come to think that the world has no moral shape. I am master of the universe because technology has delivered so much mastery uh, into our hands.
2: That's really, um, really helpful because if you think about this, if if there wasn't an abortion pill, if there wasn't synthetic testosterone, if there wasn't um, surgical abortion procedures, if there wasn't sex reassignment surgeries, many of these ideas, you know, really couldn't get off the ground and running, right? It's only with um, some of these new technologies um, that, you know, certain, you know, you know, just, you know, far-fetched ideas could even become, you know, lived possibilities. Um, But before saying more about that, I I want to go back to the intellectual genealogy, because, you know, you're not just an intellectual a historian, you are a historian, but you're also a theologian, a philosopher, a a, a pastor. And I think it would be helpful for listeners to know, what's the alternative? Um, You know, the two major ideas you've been um, discussing, one of them you've mentioned by name, expressive individualism. uh, And then the other one, um, you know, it's more or less body-self dualism, uh, the idea that, you know, we're we're higher consciousnesses. What's the truth of the matter? You know, both historically, you know, those two ideas... Are in response to what had been both kind of an Aristotelian and a Christian orthodoxy, but not just as a historical matter, just as a as a a truth matter. What should people believe about themselves when it comes to both the dualism question and the expressive individualism question?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say one of the things we need to realize is that our intuitions of autonomy are self-evident nonsense. I was speaking in Lancaster a couple of months ago, and and my oldest son and my daughter-in-law came along with what was then, I I think, my five-week-old granddaughter. Uh, I think it was the first time my oldest son, other than hearing me preach occasionally on a Sunday when he was younger, uh, first time he'd ever turned up to hear me speak at anything. I think, and halfway through the lecture, I was talking about the you know man is born free and everywhere is in chains, and I got my son to stand up and and hold my uh, granddaughter up, and I said to everyone, you know, turn around, and look at my granddaughter. Uh, is she born free? Is she autonomous? And I think it was you know, when you're faced with an example like that, it's patently obvious that the idea of human beings defined by radical autonomy is self-evident nonsense, even though intuitively we are attuned to believe that. As soon as you reflect upon it, it is self-evident nonsense. And that, I think, leads us to the significance uh, of the body because the next question, of course, is, well, why is my granddaughter uh, not autonomous? And the answer is because she's very tiny. She can't even crawl at this point. She can't feed herself. She can't clean herself. She's utterly dependent upon somebody else for her survival. And so, I think Ryan, in answer, sort of part answers to the question: is we need to to press back and and get people to just reflect for a moment upon the implications of uh, intuitions towards autonomy. Secondly, we need to start thinking about the the importance of, of our bodies for who we are. And I, I think here, actually, that, that that Christianity, there are moments, I think, where some forms of Christianity or some popular ideas in Christianity are part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Uh, a lot of Christians, when you talk to them, tend to think that the real us is our souls, uh, not so much our bodies. And I am always saying to students at Grove, you know, if the real us is just our souls, then there's no need for resurrection. Uh, the gospel doesn't end on the cross, it, it, it culminates in the resurrection. And there's a bit, uh, you're going to appreciate me citing Thomas Aquinas here. I love that bit in Thomas Aquinas' Summer where he talks about what happens after you die and uh, he makes the comment that when you die, your soul goes immediately to be with the Lord. But then he qualifies that and he says, but it isn't you. It's only you when your soul is reunited with matter, when you are once again uh, a, a, a carnated human being, if you like, a fleshly human being. And I think we need to we need to push back and get people to really think about. Well, my body is not a tool. My body is me. Uh, Roger Scruton has some great essays that he wrote on on the face, and he makes the point that. Uh, when somebody, when I smile, I'm English, I rarely smile, but on the odd occasion I smile. It's not me expressing myself as I do when I I write on a piece of paper with a pen. The pen is an instrument. My face is me. When you see me smile, you don't see uh, a light flashing on the outside of a space suit. You actually see me smile. So I would say the alternative is... Uh, an anthropology, an understanding of what it means to be human that takes embodiment seriously, that actually makes sense, more sense than the psychologized idea of what it means to be a human being. But you have to make the case, you have to get people to think critically about the intuitions they have, because everything in this world at the moment presses us towards thinking, the real me is my feelings, the body is just a tool added to those feelings to allow those feelings to express themselves
2: yeah that that passage from aquinas is so um it's so helpful i've used it so many times over the past you know now probably two decades um because you know it's relevant to the abortion debate it's relevant to the marriage debate to sexual ethics debates um to to gender identity um debates and it really just i mean what it highlights is the importance of the resurrection of the body um you know from a from a theological yeah, perspective yeah why, why does Jesus's incarnation matter? Um, why does his own resurrection matter? Why does our hoped for resurrection matter if the body is meaningless, right? If the body is just
0: a yeah, yeah. our
2: vehicle. And so it really does, um, t- to my mind, uh, um, you know, helpfully emphasize that w- w- one other thing I-, I know Zan wants to get in with, with, with another question, but, um, I also wonder, you, 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 you didn't, uh, hit on this yet? But I know you you you, you think this. So I just kind of want to invite you to say a little bit. But I mean, I also wonder how much of this is a loss of a sense of creation um, that we are creatures, and that there's a creator um, has given rise um, to expressive individualism. You know, so, so almost like, well, what's the alternative if if I'm not going to be true to myself? Who or what am I going to be true to? Right. <laughs> and so I I, I almost yeah. wonder how much of that you know if if there's not a natural law giver then what real binding force does the natural law have?
0: Yeah, I I think you're absolutely correct. And again, I think here, Nietzsche is the great articulator of this kind of thing in the uh, the 19th century. Of course, Nietzsche is far more influential today than ever he was in his own lifetime. I think before he went mad that only been one lecture or one lecture series given on his writings in the whole of Europe. So he was a minor figure in the 19th century and is a giant today. And I think reading Nietzsche really clarified for me precisely the point you're making there, Ryan, that you know, if God is dead, everything is up for grabs. Uh, and it makes no sense for everything not to be up for grabs if, if God is dead. We need, you know, Nietzsche's madman passage in the gay science is, is interesting where the madman declares that God is dead because it's not it's an exhilarating passage, but it's not a triumphant passage. And Nietzsche's really saying there, we've killed God, we've got rid of God. Now we have to rise to the challenge of being gods ourselves. We need to, everything has to be changed. We have, every value has to be transvalued. We have to become... We have to take on the task that we once ascribed uh, to God. And where that leads, I think, and I don't think Nietzsche would have wanted it to lead in this direction, but where it's ultimately led to in our day is a kind of hedonistic live for the moment. Uh, That's where this stuff ends up, because when there is nothing transcendent uh, to work for, uh, the emphasis becomes on, on immediate pleasure or continual points of immediate pleasure And satisfaction. Example I use in class repeatedly. uh, I've used this in lectures as well. Is Cologne Cathedral? I think started building Cologne Cathedral in 1248. I think it was completed around about 1888. That's 640 years. Now, 200 years were taken out for the Reformation and wars of religion, etc., etc. But even so, we know that on day one, the the architect and the first man who hewed the first stone. knew that he would never walk through the doors of the cathedral to worship the God for whom he was building. Uh, reflect on architecture today. We don't build buildings to last. Now, in one is it may seem a trivial example, but it goes to the heart of, of how we think today, and that is short-term, and it has to deliver here and now in my own lifetime. So, yeah, I think the loss of the transcendent is is devastating. And a lot of secular or or philosophers that I would regard as secular philosophers, I think, pick up on this. Um, Philip Reif, that I deal with in my book, uh, he he was an agnostic as far as I know, but he thought the loss of religion was devastating for the way people related to the world. Uh, There's some debate about whether Roger Scruton was a, a committed Christian or not, but certainly in his books, I get the impression that Religion is useful more than it's true because of what it, it delivers. And so I think even in those thinkers, you see, yeah, a loss of the transcendent. These men who may not necessarily be orthodox believers themselves see that the loss of the transcendent jeopardizes civilization, jeopardizes life, things like that.
2: So I'm, I'm going to ask one more uh, follow up and then, and then I'll shut up for a while. But, um, when, when you quoted Nietzsche on, you know, if God is dead, all is permissible, um, you, you, it got me thinking more and more about how, um, pro-abortion activists will say, don't impose your morality on me, or don't impose your theology on me as part of, um, their defense of the abortion license. And, you know, on the one hand, they're right. On the other hand, they're wrong. You know, Zan and I write something in the book to the effect that, you know, laws prohibiting fetal homicide are no more religious, but also no less religious than laws that prohibit adult homicide, right? And so if the secularist doesn't have a good answer for why, you know, we shouldn't kill each other, you, me, and Alexandra, um, then, you know, the secularist probably also doesn't have a good explanation for why we shouldn't kill our unborn children. And that it's really only with the rise of Christianity um, that we see the universalizable principle that every human being has intrinsic worth and dignity because every human being' is made in the image and likeness of God. Um, there obviously are natural law arguments that also support that. Um, but you know Nietzsche saw pretty clearly that if you got rid of that, um, you know what 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 is left there? And so it, it's a weird situation in which the uh, secularists who are pro-abortion, they're partly right but not right in the way that they think they are, right? Because they, it, it's not just going to be limited to abortion because, um, you know, our, sound morality on abortion is no more distinctively religious than sound morality on any other issue of justice is, right? And, um, so anyway, so I, I just wanted to ask you, like, how do you think about, because I imagine, you know, since you are not Catholic, you're not a Catholic integralist, you know, how do you think about the role of religion in the public square? How do you think about the role of, morality when it comes to legislation um you know what have we lost by having functionally secular uh political conversations and and what's the alternative
0: yeah it's a, it's an interesting question and i think there you know there there are many ways one could approach that uh, i've always been i'm very wary about churches adopting partisan political positions on the grounds that you know, voting is a dirty business. It involves trade-offs. You should do it as a civil duty, uh, but it's a dirty business. So I, I first of all, I would want to say I, I'm very wary of, of churches adopting partisan positions on that. Secondly, I've, I, I, I I really do think that, that Christians should bring their faith to bear on the way they vote. That is not to prescribe the way they vote, but I do hope when I was a pastor, I'm not a pastor anymore, but when I was a pastor, I hoped that what people heard from the pulpit each week shaped the way they thought about the world and inevitably would would inform the way they would cast their vote. When it comes down to the relationship then sort of between church and state, that gets a lot trickier. And I think, you know, one of the geniuses of the American uh, experiment is freedom of religion. You, you see that, you know, Tocqueville is fascinated by this when he uh, does his tour of the U.S. and and writes his Democracy in America book. Uh, uh, And I am delighted and privileged to to be a guest in in the United States, have been here for many years now, would much rather live in a country where I can worship freely on a Sunday or not worship on a Sunday uh, than, say, in a place like Iran or China, where life would be a whole lot more uncomfortable because they don't have religious freedom i do think though that re- religious freedom comes at a cost it's not a, a, a it's not a an unadulterated good from that perspective uh, in that for one thing it it makes the church it tilts the church more towards a consumer thing uh, than the old traditional Authoritative church, the Middle East. I joke. Uh, I hope you're not offended by this, but I pull Catholic friends' legs by saying, you know, uh, you're all Protest- you're Protestants too. You choose to be Catholics today. we uh, Charles Taylor makes the point, you can you can believe the same today that somebody believed in 1500, but you cannot believe in the same way because today that's cross pressured. You're making a choice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so I think there are there are drawbacks to freedom of um, religion, and one of them is I think that. Uh, in a democracy, people with views that that we find abominable uh, have the right to express those views, have the right to vote according to those views, and have the right to have legislation put in place if, if they win elections. That's a price we pay for democracy. So I'm not sure if that's answering your question in quite the way you expected, Ryan, but sort of say, it's a messy business, isn't it? Uh, I, I hope that Christians allow their Christian faith to inform their voting, uh, but I'm very uncomfortable with any notion of the church taking secular power in any significant yeah. way. No,
2: no, it, 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 exactly what I was expecting. That, that, you know that, that it's a mixed bag and it's muddy. It's not black or white. It's um, it's complicated, which which means we have to think carefully uh, and act prudently. So you know, that, that that was perfect
1: yeah I really appreciate that answer too, and I think it's um it's helpful because along with the idea that the the baby is the unborn baby is part of the mother's body, one of the most common arguments I hear from abortion supporters is, don't impose your religion on me right? Why should we all have to abide by your Christian religious beliefs and i my response when I've been asked this thus far in um, interviews is you'll be shocked to know Ryan, and I don't cite the Bible or the catechism of the Catholic Church a single time because this is all accessible by reason. it's informed by our faith, of yeah. course, but Um, It's no more an imposition of our religious beliefs than, you know, a law or practice against slavery, for example.
0: Um, Yeah, and and I think, you know, just as an example, and one example I use in class, and you'll appreciate this, Ryan, because I know that he's uh, a mentor and a good friend of yours. eh? Uh, Again, going back to the issue of of real embodiment rather than abstraction, if you could imagine a scene where Robbie George and Peter Singer are walking down uh, Nassau Street in Princeton one night, and they hear a baby crying in a doorway, and they look across, and it's a newborn baby abandoned in a doorway. My guess is that there would be no disagreement between those two men over what to do in that situation. They would call for help for the child, even though theoretically they are very, very far apart. Why? Because when you're confronted with real people in real concrete situations, you don't need to hold to certain philosophical positions to intuitively and instinctively react in the right way.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's funny. I think of something, I believe it was um, Charles Camosi, who's a um, very pro-life Catholic writer, has written about uh, Peter Singer's kind of difficulty applying his own beliefs about end of life to his own mother, I think it was, um, which is, I think, very telling.
0: I I found an interview with Peter Singer online, that I quote in class, where uh, an interviewer presses Peter Singer on that point and says, aren't you being rather inconsistent? And Singer's response is, and I think I'm quoting him verbatim, I guess it's different when it's your own mother.
1: Yeah. Right. I find that. Well, of course yeah, it is. Exactly.
0: Of course it is, man.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting kind of the, the fact that he's it's not an honest. abstraction
0: anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the, those are the breasts that nurse you, man. That's not an abstraction. Yeah.
1: Well, let's, let's switch gears a bit. I think most, most of our listeners certainly, and most people are are familiar with the concept of the sexual revolution. They know kind of historically when it happened, um, but I don't think they know much about what instigated it, or uh, you know what much about the philosophy undergirding it, apart from just kind of the basic sense that these feminists, the free love movement, kind of wanted to take apart the family because it was oppressive. I guess it was probably the main the main idea. Um, I think this philosophy is the the sort of main in addition to what you've been talking about as you know, the self as this autonomous, uh, self-defining, self-directing individual, expressive individual, uh, I think this is the main concept undergirding the pro-abortion movement now. So could you could you say a bit about some of the main concepts that drove the second wave feminists and, and the proponents of the sexual revolution?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if we're looking at second wave feminism, I would zero in on Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, the... Uh, the companion lover, once a part of sometime lover, but lifetime companion of Jean Paul Sartre. When I teach on de Beauvoir in class, I always make the point to students that I think she's more brilliant than Sartre is. I mean, Sartre is, is kind of an antique now. De Beauvoir's thinking, I think, continues to inform things. Uh, de Beauvoir is an interesting figure I, I, in part. she's She both builds upon and reacts against Sigmund Freud. I think Freud is the critical figure for the development of, of sexual politics as we. We now see it, though Freud himself was a, a fairly conservative figure in many ways. Freud is the man who sees you know, sexual desire as lying at the very heart of what we are as human beings. His three essays on sexuality, he develops this way of looking at the development of human beings from birth right the way through to adulthood, always in terms of the nature and direction of an expression of sexual desire. And what Freud does is he makes sexual desire... Uh, a, a key component of who we are. You know, if you read the Bible, uh, you will see sex uh, in various places, but it's always sex as behaviour. Freud is the man who turns sex into a, a, a sort of a psychological thing, if you like, to the extent that I, uh, if if a teenager goes to his parents today and says, you know, Dad, I think I'm gay. The teenager may not be making any statement about any sexual experience he's engaged in. He's he's simply talking about the direction or the nature of his sexual desire. de Beauvoir reacts against Freud somewhat because Freud has a very low view of women. Uh, Essentially, the problem with women is they're neurotic because they want to be men. And de Beauvoir, I think, rightly reacts against that. But she also builds upon Freud in seeing sexual desire as a very important part of what it means to be a human being. Secondly, she builds upon a, a tradition that one can see. It, it certainly predates second wave feminism, but it becomes something of a hallmark of second wave feminism, uh, that the, the major problem with women is that they can conceive. And I think here we see some of the seeds of, of the modern transgender movement as well. Uh, with de Beauvoir, when you read de Beauvoir, it's very clear that conception is a problem that getting pregnant is a burden it's a hindrance to the woman fulfilling herself and if i can recommend a book to listeners uh abigail favale's new book the genesis of gender is has a chapter on de Beauvoir that is a brilliant summary i think of, of her on this point it's, so it's conception becomes a pr- you exactly yeah, it's exactly right. so it is it is um it's uh, it, so pregnancy becomes a problem and that of course provides if you like the we might say the intellectual uh, framework then for the use of uh, of abortion and contraceptives that we see uh, really emerging uh, in in the 1950s and then the 1960s is when it really takes off with the advent of the uh, uh, of the pill but pregnancy becomes a problem. And you see this perhaps in its most politically dramatic form in the work of somebody like Shulamith Firestone. In, in 1970, uh, her book, The Dialectic of Sex, she makes the point that there can be no true sexual equality until. Um, Conception is, is effectively a mechanized process. It's been picked up recently by Sophie Lewis in her Full Surrogacy Now book, which is a fascinating read, um, partly because uh, she's addressing a very serious issue, and that is what is the legal status of surrogate mothers. But her answer is, well, we get rid of natural childbirth and then everybody's equal. Uh, she puts that forward as a serious suggestion. But you, you see this idea of pregnancy as the problem expressed in in a very pointed form in in Schulamith Firestone. Incidentally, Firestone comes to a very, very tragic end. She dies in her apartment in Manhattan, uh, and her body isn't discovered for some days. It's not until the smell reaches other apartments. And I use that as an example in class and say to the students, you know, if you build a philosophy of radical autonomy in the way that this woman did then dying alone and not missed by anybody is a tragic but not entirely unexpected end. Uh, and of course, pregnancy, second wave feminism, pregnancy is one of the things that points to to the fact that we're not autonomous. Uh, and that, again, is why I think uh, the philosophy of abortion sees uh, the baby in the womb as a problem because the baby is prima facie evidence that the mother has obligations. And I would add... The father, too, has obligations and again uh, recommending uh, uh, another wonderful book, Erica Bakiyoki's book the rights of, of women uh, is it makes that point well I think that pregnancy points to the fact that we're not autonomous either as men or as women it brings with it uh, obligations
1: yeah I'm glad you brought up Erica's work because we we cite her a few times in the book and rely on her her thinking a lot and um, her work when we talk about women and how abortion is harmful to women. And I, I love, as a side note that you brought up Firestone, because it reminds me, I, I wrote my senior thesis at Notre Dame about the sexual revolution. I remember reading The Dialectic of Sex and just, you know, my, my eyes were about falling out of my head at some of this stuff. As a senior in college, I was just like, how could anybody think like this, but it's actually, it's funny to be having this conversation with you now, because I, I cited some of your articles in that thesis. And now here I am talking to you about this very topic in my own (laughs) book. So it's pretty cool. Um,
0: and the amazing thing about Firestone is she's calling for artificial reproduction before it was a possibility. Right. She sounds mad in 1970. She sounds totally up to date today.
1: I know. And the idea that, you know, everything will be will be in these polyamorous kind of families and there'll be totally artificial reproduction. People can choose their genders. It's all I mean, we're living in it. So um, just about. uh, But yeah, I think you kind of already touched on my next sort of thought and question a bit. But um, how would you say these sort of philosophical ideas contribute to the fact that we now live in a culture that accepts and celebrates abortion as a victory for women in our society? And, and we talk about this um, a lot in our second chapter, just the idea that, uh, that women are, are only free and fulfilled, that women can only be liberated um, if they have access to abortion. And just to give an example, you know, there was this, this brief of uh, written by an amicus brief written by female athletes um, in the lead up to mm-hmm. Dobbs on behalf of the abortion clinic in the case saying, you know, none of us would have been successful. We wouldn't be where we are if we didn't have access to abortion. This is something I hear all the time from proponents of abortion, right? Women need this for various reasons. And that obviously starts with the notion that pregnancy is some kind of debilitation and that rather than supporting women and children, we should just, you know, encourage women to kill their children. But could you say a bit more about that?
0: yeah and just as an aside on that amicus brief, uh, what fascinated me was the language they used about their bodies to go back to an earlier point their bodies aren 't them; their bodies are the tools of their trade. They talked about their bodies as a carpenter might talk about a saw or I might talk about a pen. Uh, it was fascinating the separation between them as subjects and the bodies they talked about that that 's a sort of of an aside, but yes, I think you 're going right to the heart of it, and we see this in the the shifting rhetoric on abortion. Uh, yeah, I think one of the geniuses. I, I think it was the Clinton administration had the phrase uh, "safe, legal, rare," uh, and that was the way to sell abortion to to Middle America because it it presented it as something that was an unfortunate necessity. It's interesting, the reaction against the rare aspect of that that I'm seeing in places now. Uh, it, it seems that, no, we, we, we shouldn't pretend it's rare because that makes abortion sound as if it's problematic but necessary. So I, I think you're, you're absolutely right that we are seeing now a, a celebration of abortion, precisely, I think, for the reasons uh, we've talked about already in this podcast, that uh, that if, a, if pregnancy is the primary evidence that we are not free, autonomous, and independent, then the destruction of the idea of the good of pregnancy has to be central, has to be central to the proclamation of our autonomy.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the safe, legal, and rare. We have a whole section in one of our chapters talking about the, the progression of the Democratic Party, or I guess the the devolution of the democratic party on this issue and how there were once pro-life Democrats and, and then it became safe, legal and rare. And today it's, uh, you know, safe, legal and anytime you want it for any reason paid for by the taxpayer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's yes. There's much that could be said about that. <laughs> uh, but I think I haven't reached that bit in your book yet. I'm still trying to cope with. I, I told you last week, just the first couple of pages, the description of the of the of the abortionist in, you know who who changes his mind mid-abortion kind of thing, uh, was so deeply shocking to me. I had to sort of sit back and think about that for a while.
2: It, it is unfortunately a really um, th- there are parts of the books that are just really de- depressing. Um, and you know, yeah. and, and Zan and I, we didn't write it to be depressing, but just the reality of abortion. Is depressing. We tried peppering the book with as many signs of hope. You know, we we mention the Niffin family and the way that they loved uh, their son born with, um, you know, pretty uh, pronounced disabilities. Um, You know, as kind of those signs of hope, we mentioned, you know, people like the Sisters of Life. But you know, those are all what the pro life movement is doing. Anytime you're really looking at the pro abortion movement, it's really just kind of sad and depressing. But um, we can't look away. I mean, part of the book is, you know, this is what's going on, and so we have to acknowledge it. Um we're we're running out of time though which, which is great um you know the time's flying by because Carl you're such a you know engaging guest and so insightful we we
0: It's just the accent Ryan I'm reading <laughs> read the, the phone book, book actually we <laughs> might have you
2: back just to read the phone book and I think it would be as enticing now I'm joking um but so we mainly focused on your um you know your day-to-day job as an intellectual historian as 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 you know an ideas guy but you've also, you mentioned that you have served as a pastor you're not currently pastoring a church, what is your advice? We, we, we always like to close with kind of like a practical question. And so yeah. you know, what is your advice for this moment um, to members of the clergy? What should the church be doing? How should people be preaching about these issues? What role does the church have um, in, in yeah. building that culture of life?
0: Yeah, I think there are, there are again, okay, this that's a huge. That's a straightforward question with with a lot of different answers one could give. I think first of all, one one always needs to be careful not to get too wrapped up as a, a, as a priest or a pastor, not to get too wrapped up with the issues of the moment. Uh, the role of the pastor or the priest is to prepare people for eternity. So I, I do think there's a case where one needs to preach the whole counsel of God. And one of the great things I think about preaching the whole counsel of God is. If you have a good grasp of the whole counsel of God, then whatever crazy thing the world throws up next, you have some kind of foundation for, for addressing it. You know, you don't, you know, it doesn't matter that the 17th century guys who wrote the Westminster Confession that sets the doctrinal standards of my church didn't include a chapter on gay marriage. Because they included a chapter, a positive chapter on what the Bible teaches about marriage, which gives you a foundation to address the many variants that are now out there in our society. So first of all, I think preach the whole counsel of God. Secondly, I would say, and this advice was given to me, this was a decade ago when I took up the pastorate. Uh, don't assume they said that. Then it was don't assume that anyone under the age of thirty-five uh, agrees with you on the issue of sexuality abortion and these kind of issues so i think it's it's very useful to be aware that young people and that was 10 years ago young people are growing up in an in a, in a world where the traditional views are under huge pressure and are being transformed all the time thirdly my advice to parents is don't give your kids a smartphone uh, i for a whole variety of reasons I think we know, or we're, we're only just beginning to realize how influential smartphones are on, on young people's lives. If they, you know, Once they're 18, they're earning their own money, they want to buy their own, let them have it. But if you give your 10-year-old child a smartphone, you are letting the most evil people in the universe, you are giving those people direct access to your child. So the one piece of practical advice would be, don't give your kids smartphones.
2: You know, we're recording this ahead of time. So I don't know when this will post, but you know, on the day that we're recording, just yesterday, um, EPC put out a parent's guide to technology that was, you know, co-authored by Claire Morell, Patrick Brown, Noel Maring, and Mary Hassan. Um and it's really good. It, it 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 um confirms the point you just made, Carl, about the dangers of uh, smart devices and not giving uh children smartphones. But it goes through, you know, Various um, uh, 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 social media sites that you might be accessing from a desktop computer, a whole host of harms to children that technology, particularly um, uh, uh, social media and kind of um, you know smart devices, pose to children. You know, so it highlights all of the threats, but then it also gives parents some resources in terms of various filters that they can put on laptops, TVs, smart TVs. Um, uh, smart devices. If you, you know, you can also get dumb phones for your kids. If your kid needs a phone to be able to call <laughs> you after soccer practice ends, you know, how you can set it up so the kid can't get around, you know, the the, the functionality restraints that you put on it. So it's, it's a really good resource um, that I commend. I don't know when this will be published, but, you know, it, it'll be on our website in perpetuity. So whenever this is released, you know, it's something I commend to our listeners.
1: Yeah, it's really important, and I I uh, I think I'm in the last generation pretty much to have grown up before the iPhone was ubiquitous. I didn't have a cell phone till high school, and even then it was one of those slidey keyboard phones. And I most of the time I I miss that phone quite a bit, and I I wish I could tell myself, don't give yourself an iPhone, right? Because it's really damaging, I think, to all of us in a lot of ways, um, but especially so to kids. Uh, well, on that note, I think we're we're out of time for today. But thank you so much, um, Carl, for joining us and for sharing all your insights with us and our listeners.
0: Thanks for having me on. It's great to spend time with you.
1: Thanks for listening to Life After Dobbs. Ryan and I are co-authors of the new book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, which you can order now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. This podcast has been sponsored by the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can learn more about our work at our website, eppc.org, including our Life and Family Initiative.